Once again, party people, we are here for the RRI podcast, Race and Reconciliation Initiative, and we're so very privileged and pleased to have caring members of our community come into our circle, come into our space, and share with us their pathways and their journeys as we're looking to move forward towards reconciliation. So we have with us Dr. Rhonda Tawil. Can you explain to us where you are in the TCU universe? Hello, I'm Dr. Rhonda Tawil. Um, so I am an assistant professor in the Department of Women and Gender Studies, and I'm affiliated with um, the Comparative Race and Ethnic Studies Department as well. It's my first year as an assistant professor here, so I'm still kind of figuring out the ropes, meeting people. Obviously, the pandemic has made it a little harder, but um, I've been trying, trying to reach out, meet the students, meet professors, and get a sense of TCU. Newsflash. You're suggesting to us that Women and Gender Studies has tenure track lines? What is going on? Yes, so I am the first tenure track line in Women and Gender Studies. The department, you know, it's been a long journey. It started as a program um, and was created into a department kind of only recently in the last, I think, 10 years. And yeah, I'm the first sort of faculty hire line, and we're really hoping to build the department, hire more people. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of innovative, exciting work in women and gender studies, and want to bring more people to the party. When we talk about women and gender studies, what are some of the common misperceptions? Are people sometimes resistant? I mean, do they just not understand where you're coming from or even the larger mission as far as how this fits in? I mean, what, what are some of the comments that you receive and, and what, what, how do you have to navigate these, um, you know, these questions or maybe perhaps microaggressions as far as people questioning, well, what's this about? What does this mean in terms of where you fit in the TC universe? It's an old problem with any kind of department that wants to veer away from kind of traditional um, disciplines. Women and gender studies, one of, you know, I tell my students two of the things that we're really doing in women and gender studies. One is making the familiar strange, right? Making things, questioning things that seem natural, that seem innate to us and understanding how they're actually part of larger societal structures, right? Part of the structures of power. So what, you know, seems more natural to us than gender for many people, right? Oh, well, this is just how I am. And so in women and gender studies, we really question that. And what we also question is power, right? We look and try to find the kind of invisible power that's existing around us and we really shine a light onto that. And, you know, for a lot of people that's actually, um, 
a threat, right? Because it's because once people learn um, that the way their life is isn't just because something natural, something innate, you start to question, you start to demand more things. I remember when I got my job in women and gender studies, you know, from older, I used to joke that it was like, um, oh, I got a job as a professor. And then, you know, my older relatives were like, oh, and then I would finish the sentence of women and gender studies. And then it was like, oh, <laughs> you know, so there is definitely a misconception that it's not, you know, a rigorous field. I've had people say, oh, I'd love to work in that department. I bet there are a lot of women in that department, you know, that's not rigorous. Wait, wait, no, seriously, people say these things? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about it because I think, you know, a lot of people are threatened by feminist thought. A lot of people are threatened by a department that is literally like created by and for marginalized people. I know every uh, superhero has an origin story. What, what was kind of your uh, inspiration for, for joining or, or kind of going into that field? My actual uh, PhD is in American studies. So I came into, I would say I came into American studies. I actually did it in undergrad. Um, how did I get into it? I, I remember in undergrad, there was a professor. Her name is Kehalani Kawanui. She's still a professor. Um, at Wesleyan University, and um, somebody recommended me to take her class on, it was called Indigenous Sovereignty Politics. And, you know, I was a sophomore, and I was like, I have no idea what any of those words really mean together, but I'll do it. It was really recommended. So I went into this class, and it really blew my mind. It was basically, I mean, basically, you know, Native American history, uh, Native American sort of fights for sovereignty. And she as a professor really profoundly shaped me because not only was I learning about this history that was so exciting, but she also pushed me to start to ask questions about my my own history. I'm Arab American and, you know, I was going to school uh, during the war in Iraq, you know, I was in high school during 9-11. So, you know, I had a lot of questions about like what being Arab in the United States, what's up with that? And she really helped me kind of look into that and I learned so much about race and power and history um, through that through that journey and so I decided I wanted to keep going. I went to grad school for it and I got more and more interested in the story of women migrants, what it means to migrate um, as a woman, how women are policed in particular ways when they're migrating. What does migration and gender, what do they have to do with each other? I also honestly had a lot of amazing feminist professors throughout my education who really modeled what it means to be inquisitive, to be courageous in your studies, to really kind of look at power in a uh, a really rigorous way, and then also how to engage with that in your, you know, life outside of academia. I'm always interested to see what inspired those who, for a living, choose to inspire others. Because I think that just understanding that connection really puts in the context of why you do what you do. Another question I have, and this is more so uh, personal for me as, as a Black man, uh, a lot of times when we walk into spaces, uh, our salient identity is race. 
for the first time kind of fully unpacked that it's not just race, but there's an intersectionality of race and gender, race and sexuality, race, gender, and sexuality, all these other different marginalized identities that aren't uh, necessarily spoken about. So for you as a professor, um, how do you kind of approach that work um, in, in really laying out how nuanced intersectionality is? So I like to think about it in terms of, first of all, throughout the course, I always want to, if we're talking about women, I say, okay, yes, but which women? If we're talking about race, okay, but what gender? If we're talking about women, you know, black women, okay, but what class? You know, it's always about reminding ourselves constantly that we need to be understanding if we're talking about a person, what institutions, what structures are intersecting Mm -hmm. to kind of create their experience. I talk to my students about, for example, when we really are talking about intersectionality as a concept, I use an example. It was from the New York Times recently. They did a really wonderful story about after Texas passed certain laws that kind of policed undocumented people further, what was found is that there was a real drop in Latinx women calling into uh, domestic violence hotlines. And so what you could see from the data is actually in Texas in the last like year, the number of people who called into domestic violence hotlines had risen. But if you looked at it by sort of ethnic group, Mm -hmm. you saw that Latinx women, it had dropped because of these like increasing policing of undocumented migrants women were more afraid to come forward if they came forward they were afraid that their partners would be deported you know instead of just a night in jail to cool off right it would be they would be deported forever right and so you know i explained to my students like if you are somebody who is studying domestic violence in texas if you just think on the line of gender you're going to miss this incredibly important story, right? Mm -hmm. If you're just thinking on the line of citizenship, you're going to miss this incredibly important story. And so, you know, I encourage them always to kind of, again, it's, it's, it's about being, being rigorous, which really like what is more rigorous than trying to hold all of these, as we call the matrices of domination, all of these forms, of oppression, what is more rigorous than trying to hold them all in your head as you are, you know, studying? What are some of the techniques you utilize in the classroom? Because when you're doing the work and you talk about matrices of oppression and and dominance, I can imagine that some students might be taken aback or even some colleagues might be taken aback, right? This is awkward, this is difficult, this is uncomfortable. What's the approach? Because you want to speak truth to power and not coddle people, but at the same time, want to leave the door open for continued engagement. How, how do you thread that needle? What I want my students to get away from a course, any course, and it's cliche to say, but it is critical thinking. And to me, what critical thinking means is reading or watching something or listening to something and understanding what's the argument, what's the evidence, what are the assumptions? The way that I approach these conversations is is through the readings. You know, what are these scholars trying to say? What are they saying to us? What would Gramsci say about XYZ? What would Foucault say about healthcare? What would he say about that, right? And so in that sense, I'm pushing my students to really engage with arguments because 
as we know, you know, you go out in the world and there's one news headline that says this and there's a news headline that says the opposite. And it's really hard these days to to know what to think about anything, right? Because we have these competing realities almost, right? And so for me, as a professor, what I want them to get away with this is, how do you read something and figure out what's the evidence this author is using? What's the what's the argument? And what are like that person's assumptions? What Who are they leaving out? Who are they forgetting about? So with using the framework of Foucault, um, how would you think that necessarily, or what would be uh, something important for our listeners to understand about uh, Foucault and his idea of controlling uh, the body or controlling individuals um, and through the lens of women and gender studies? You know, one thing that I always, when I teach Foucault, I do two things. I teach the kind of classic panopticon idea. Um, what it means to have that architecture. And I say, let's think about the sort of traditional classroom and how that functions. So, you know, I put a picture up of like a 1950s classroom and everybody is, you know, everyone's in these rows and they're facing the teacher, right? And I say, okay, what what's happening in this classroom? And we talk about it. And I say, okay, who can see, can the students see each other in this classroom? No, they can't see each other, right? Can the professor see everybody? Yeah, so okay. The students, they can't see their classmates, they can only see the professor. The professor can see everybody. And so, how do you act in the classroom? Like if the professor says something that's ridiculous, right? Says something that's racist. You can't, you know, if you look around to see what your classmates do, you know that the professor can look at you, right? And can know what you're doing. Right. You know that um, you start when you're in a classroom, if you're taking a test and the questions on the test make no sense, you're sitting there and you're like, do I look at my friends to see if they, it also makes no sense to them, but then it looks like I'm cheating. Right. Okay, I should just sit quietly. Oh, should I go up to the professor? Should I not, right? That's the panopticon. And so right. we have it in our own classrooms, in our own lives. Right. And so we, we discipline our bodies. We sit quietly, listen, even when sometimes you just want to like look around and be like, yo, isn't what this person's saying horrible? You know? It, 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 it intacts the power by, by uh, physical structure. So I guess my follow-up to you would be, how do we undo power or, or uh, reuse it in a more productive manner? I would say the first thing is to recognize it. I think that's the thing that I try to do in my class is really have students recognize things again that seem normal that seem just kind of how it is and understand that that's actually part of a system of power because once you you know once you understand that once you understand that there's a reason that you went to a school that had really like old used textbooks and somebody else went to a school that had super nice textbooks that there's a reason that like people keep getting sick in your hometown but mm -hmm people don't in another way. So it's wait, so what you're saying is that getting people to understand that normal is actually maybe not normal. Yeah. Getting people to understand that normal is actually historically specific, structurally specific, embedded with a lot of power and a lot of historical legacies. Then you start to demand something different. You know, for me it's really about opening the imagination of students. I don't think we talk enough about imagination, but 
really, you know, I think in order to make change, we have to be able to imagine new futures for ourselves, mm -hmm. to imagine new realities. And often the choices that we're presented with aren't enough. And we have to actually use our imagination to imagine what is a more just society, right? What is a place where we can all be equitable? The first step to that is realizing that it's a false choice. Or the first step to that is realizing, oh, this is not how it has to be. And then if you understand that this isn't how it has to be, then you can take the exciting leap to say, well, if this isn't how it has to be, actually, how can I create, how can I work to create new um, conditions? So two things that really resonate with what you said. When you talk about the power of imagination, I remember uh, the, the tale goes, someone asked Albert Einstein, who's considered to be you know, a fairly intelligent individual, like, what should I do to have my children essentially be smart? Mm. You know, like, how, you know, what type of math should I tell them? What type of science, you know, please, Sarah, tell me. And he's like, read them fairy tales. Mm. And it was like, wait, what? No, yeah, like, read them fairy tales. Like, stimulate their imagination. That's going to be the key, right? Mm. So speaking of which, let's pivot a bit to when you talk about creating. Well, I don't know. I mean, here you were. I mean, the, the ink was... Uh, just not even two weeks old on your contract and you're creating a film series on campus. Like WTF, like what is going on? You know what I'm saying? So if you could share with us like what, why you saw movies as a medium by which to bring people together mm -hmm. and, and, and how it taps into your creative juices as far as getting these conversations going. It's something that is relatively, I think, easy to get people to get involved with. Everybody is sitting around not doing anything. We might as well watch a movie. Curating a film series is a really great way to kind of bring people together who anyway already are probably just gonna watch a movie. Um, and then for me, I think it's a wonderful way to create community because you're able to, you know, talk about something that you all just saw together that's fresh in your mind. Um, and Everybody has kind of a different reaction to you coming from a different place, but I think it's an easy way to create community and create conversation. And also specifically the film series here, what, what was the, the, the purpose, the aim, the intent, and what were some of the, the films and conversations that you helped to inspire? First semester, I did a film series on teen movies. And the reason I did that, you know, we're not on campus together. I really wanted to meet students. I really wanted to make students feel involved in women and gender studies and feel like there are actually really cool, interesting conversations to be had. And I thought, well, if I do teen movies, you know, maybe people will come just because they love Clueless, you know, because they love Scream and they don't realize that there's actually so much to unpack when it comes to gender, when it comes to class, race, etc. Um, but then, you know, in our kind of final movies, I was really expanding, okay, what do we mean by teen movies? Who gets to be a teen? Who doesn't? What are the tropes? How is this related to race? And the last one, actually, Dr. G was part of um, a conversation about Mosquita Imari. And it was an incredible conversation with students. And I really felt like it was a special place. I didn't, I felt like there were a lot of um, students of color who were really sort of 
itching to talk about their experience and to see these movies. And so I decided I really wanted to do a film series this semester that's just made by people of color. The first one is The Hate You Give, which is a pretty mainstream one. Some of them are not as mainstream. We're going to be watching The Body Remembers When the Earth Broke Open, which is an indigenous, um, um, an indigenous film. We're watching Candyman, which is just an amazing horror film. Trying to engage with these different films um, and hopefully creating a sense of community and creating a sense of like, this is something we take seriously and care about on this campus. So, so I'm, I'm assuming with uh, the use of film, uh, the idea of representation is, is important to you, right? So how did you, how do you feel that, you know, in, in college, introducing people to unpacking films in a way that's a little bit more critical, mm -hmm. that we can also unpack how important representation of different identities actually is? Sometimes I have a problem with representation as an idea, because if there's no politics behind it, then it's often pretty um, shallow. You know, mm -hmm. like, just because there's a black person on screen doesn't necessarily mean that the movie is, you know, presenting a new story. It's really about when people of color are producing the films, are, you know, writing the stories, etc., imagining new worlds, like presenting really different worldviews. That to me is what's really exciting about these films. And we can talk for, you know, hours whether a movie does that, right? Whether it and uh, as we close out, I just want to ask, um, given the name of this podcast, Reconcile This, how would you define reconciliation? It's a last step, right? And there are a lot of steps before that. Reconciliation kind of feels like acceptance, you know, like the seven stages of grief or whatever, and acceptance mm -hmm. is the last one, but you got to go through all those others. Right. And that's kind of how I see reconciliation. You know, there are a lot of steps towards it. And a lot of it has to do with truly engaging, truly kind of listening, truly admitting, you know, you can't have reconciliation without people really admitting when they're, that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of aligning with what maybe a vision of justice might look like, or at least kind of aligning to be on the same side of figuring out what it will look like, then we can have reconciliation. So for today's Doc Talk session, we have Dr. Anderson here. Um, so briefly, Dr. Anderson, if you could just uh, introduce yourself and then I uh, talk about the document that you brought. Hi, uh, I'm Sue Anderson and I am a professor in the College of Education and I've been at TCU about 28 years. So I am working as a co-chair with Sarah Robbins on the Confederacy Task Force of the RRI and uh, Sarah and I are working with Alan Galay. And we have six volunteers. We've all been reading and digging through the archives and finding lots of interesting things. So the document that you brought today uh, was a really interesting piece um, about uh, a Black man named Charlie Thorpe. Um, you want to say a little bit more about who Charlie was um, in his personal life as well as to TCU? Charlie Thorpe was born around 1850 and he died in 1927. So the piece I'm gonna share was written in 1927 by Randolph Clark, and it was published in 
the Christian Courier in 1927, so right after Charlie died. Charlie was married to Kate Lee in 1882, and they had at least five children. Charlie Thorpe was active on the TCU community, correct, in, in that helping uh, with janitorial services, uh, ensuring that there were enough facilities and resources for the classroom settings. Uh, could you speak a little bit about that part of his, his active role in establishing TCU? So I first read about Charlie and his wife, Kate, in a book called Thank God We Made It that was written by Joseph Lynn Clark. So Joseph Lynn Clark is the son of Randolph Clark, who is one of our founders. After you know, the war, Charlie gradually assumed uh, direction of his personal affairs and became a worthy member of the community. By the way, in the, ninth, in the 1870 census indicates that there were about 100 freed Blacks in Hood County at the time. And by 1880, Charlie was still living with uh, Pleasant Thorpe, according to the census. Joseph Lynn goes on to say that Charlie and Kate were individuals whose service to the school and to the people of the town entitled them to an exalted place in the annals of Thorpe's, of the Thorpe Spring Enterprise. In efficiency, dependability, and loyalty, they were superior in their respective spheres. So that's what he wrote. And then some of the jobs that uh, Charlie did included, like you said, um, keeping the buildings in repair, uh, making fires in the classroom stoves, filling the oil lamps, preparing the auditorium for Sunday service, ringing the bell that regulated the school schedule, and even serving as a detective when students misbehaved. And then he was also the fire chief of the town. We have so much information about all the many hats that this individual played on the TCU campus. It's not insignificant in any form, but here is someone who was recently emancipated, Mm -hmm. uh, but at one point was enslaved and was helping uh, erect uh, TCU, even though the location was in a different place at one point, there was still this helping in the foundation and the building of the foundation that is so very interesting. One thing that, that I heard you say is that he pretty much had a position of power by uh, playing a detective. And we can rightfully assume these are white students who were breaking you know, school conduct and school rules. And here is a uh, enforcer who happens to be black and once enslaved. Yeah, so he did, wow. other than the academic side of things, he, he seemed to be involved in just about everything on the side of you know keeping Adran College going. There right. was even a story in the book about him catching somebody stealing fruit off a tree and then it was dark at the time. And so he then realized that was Addison Clark that was stealing the fruit. <laughs> wow, wow. He certainly did a lot of things for the university and helped to ensure its success. Okay, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read part of it. Charlie is dead. This came like the breaking of a link that bound us to the far away beginning of the Adran days. Charlie had gone through many hardships for others. When he gave up the fight, it was won or lost. Were a house on fire, he was the first to the rescue. He would brave more dangers, take more risks, and save more valuables than any, and with no thought of reward. In the typhoid epidemic, he was an efficient nurse, 
and was often a lone watcher through weary nights. He watched with one boy 30 nights and when sufficiently recovered to be moved, Charlie took his own team and wagon, provided a comfortable bed, took him 80 miles home, watching him day and night, and this without hire. This is only a small part of the life of like service. He practiced the spirit of Christ in hard service to others, but he was not Christian. Why? Charles Thorpe was born in slavery and his 78 years was a life of slavery. After emancipation, he was told that he was free, but he never realized the freedom. If any difference, it was harder work. He was not allowed to get an education the association's form did not inspire him to high aims. Charlie was endowed with far more than ordinary intellect. He could have made the equal of Booker Washington or the successful businessmen of his race, yet he was not allowed to have a vision of that life. Yet he felt he was out of place in the low immoral class. Who is responsible for this waste? And this was written by Randolph Clark. Yes. The, the, one of the founders of TCU. Yes, and, and that was 1927. So this is after Charlie died, but it was also at the end of Randolph's life. Right. Randolph was a, an old man at this point. And, you know, Randolph's son, Joseph Lynn, who wrote that book, co-founded the Texas Commission on Interracial Cooperation in 1920. So this is after that association had been formed. So perhaps there was some realization later in life or at some point that, you know, that this whole situation was unfair, that there was inequity and that um, someone was to blame. And, you know, hopefully somebody was going to do something about that. Right. Right. Wow. That, that to, for, for Randolph Clark, the founder of, of the institution to, write something in, in such detail um, and have such reflection for, for the life of Charles Thorpe. He puts the humanity um, in, into the name of saying what type of character he was. Um, mm -hmm. But one thing I just, I can't uh, ignore is that at the end of it, he says, who was responsible for this waste? In many ways, I don't know if he is leaving himself out of that conversation as if he didn't also play a part in the limiting of freedom because Charles Thorpe was given by the Thorpe, uh, by, by Mr. Thorpe to help build the Adiran College. And I think we could, we could talk on this on hours, but I, I'm now, I'm really interested. I hope our listeners are, are more so interested um, in the life of Charles Thorpe and what uh, may come about the truth as we uncover it. But this is a great uh, Doc Talk in intermission. And I thank you for bringing this article to light, Dr. Anderson. Sure, absolutely. It's been very interesting to learn more about Charlie. And like you said, um, it helps to humanize the story. You know, we, you know, we know in the abstract what slavery was and how society is inequitable, was and is, yeah. but to know the story of a specific person right. and the unfairness of the situation. And like you said, we don't even know if Randolph felt personally responsible. Right. Because, you know, perhaps it was not acceptable to white people at the time to educate blacks and whites in the same room. Right. 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 But could they have taught Charlie to read and write? 
outside of the classroom in another setting, you know, they could have done that. Right. And I don't know if he realized that they bore some responsibility, but he certainly seemed to have realized that it was unfair. We have the pleasure and privilege of welcoming to our space, Adrian Andrews, who's going to talk to us a little bit about the relationship that he has with reconciliation. Can you share with us where you are within the so-called TCU universe? I am the Assistant Vice Chancellor for Public Safety. So what does that mean? That's the longest title I've ever had. I've been at TCU for the last three years. Uh, before that, I was with the United States Secret Service for 28 years. But in my capacity now as the uh, Assistant Vice Chancellor, I'm over the Director of Emergency Management, a gentleman by the name of Sean Taylor. And he has been the whiz who has saved our butts during this pandemic. This guy is brilliant. He's the one who required every department on the campus to have plans to deal with uh, the COVID. And he's in meetings every day, he's awesome. Uh, I'm also over the parking and transportation section, which is a little bit new, is not in my uh, background, but I'm learning a lot. And then I'm also over the TCU Police Department. So let's just get right into it. When okay. you say the P word police, how do you reconcile with this idea that you have a job to do, very difficult, but many people may think correctly or incorrectly certain things when they hear that word police and associate you with maybe all these ideas. And so how do you distinguish yourself and end up telling your truth? Here's the thing with me, um, being a black male in America and also being in law enforcement gives me a unique perspective. Um, I, I love um, being in the service, uh, in the realm of public service. That's what I was, a lot of young people don't know what their why is, why they are here, what their purpose is. I know what my why is, and it's always been, I have been a servant of the people. I want to service uh, people and the skills that I have as far as keeping people safe, willing to put my life on the line for those who are not trained and educated in the areas that I am. That's what I'm here to do. And I try to do my best at my job every day. So for those that don't feel that police protect them, you know, what do you, what do you say to those folks that, that, that see the police or the policing system as a power dynamic that pretty much dehumanizes them or limits their humanity or mobility in society? The number one enemy of good police officers or bad police officers, I think that um, policing is just like any other job. It's like being a college professor. It's like being a doctor. My wife is an emergency room doctor and I'm sure um, she knows bad doctors as well. Uh, so no, I just think that policing is a small microcosm of society. We have good cops and we may have one or two bad ones, um, and depending on the size of the police department or whatever. I think the numbers are small, but they should be down to zero. But I'm not sure if that's ever going to be possible as long as we uh, employ humans. 
And I do understand it. Listen, man, I still, when I take this tie off, I still get a little anxious if some police officer pulls behind me. I ain't gonna lie to you because he doesn't know that I'm the assistant vice chancellor of public safety and that I've carried a gun for 30 years of my life. Most of them see me as a law abiding citizen as well. Maybe one or two of them do not. So I totally understand when people feel apprehensive when dealing with the police. You're saying that even though you're in law enforcement, carry a gun, you're not immune to the apprehension and the feelings of distrust that we're talking about. No, my brother, you have to understand. No, listen. <laughs> well, cause, I mean, um, well, you know, outside looking in, people don't know, right? Well, I, I, and I get that. I appreciate that. Uh, but no, I'm a, listen, and I still give the speech to uh, young nephews and young cousins that this is what you should do if you're stopped by the police. Because yes, I totally understand that people shouldn't feel that way. But my father told me, my father, I talked to him earlier today, 75 years old. I said, dad, that's not fair. He said, son, the fair is at the fairgrounds. That's the only fair you're going to get. Okay. So it's not fair. We understand it. But yes, black men my age who've been carrying a gun for years, they feel apprehension as well, because we know that um, there are great officers who put on the badge every day and man, they are warriors and they're good people. And that's the people we hire at TCU. Uh, but there are some bad folks out there who will do evil things. And I don't know which officer that is until I get a chance to, uh, you know, maybe uh, talk a little bit with him to find out where his head is at. The young people at TCU, they're going to learn a lot of things while they're there. They're going to, their eyes are going to be open to a lot of experience, I hope, because that's how college was for me. My job is I want to try to, in any way that I possibly can, is say, hey, you can't look at the police as your enemy automatically. And if that initially pops into your head, that's fine. But you're going to learn some coping skills that'll tell you, hey, listen, okay, I understand that fear, that rationality is based on history. It's based on how I was brought up or whatever. But I'm going to learn over the next couple of years that let's give him a chance first. Because if we allow or we teach our young people to automatically look at the police fear them and distrust them, that's just as bad as say a white police officer looking at a young black man walking down the street and automatically assuming that he is a criminal. No, I don't feel that same sense of ownership. I mean, and, okay. and I'm not trying to be funny, but I don't look at the police and be like, oh yeah, you work for me. But it sounds like you're saying that's where I should be saying. Well, and here's the thing. Or in hopes to, right? That's what I hope, exactly. In the Secret Service, whenever a president would look over at me and I'm wearing a suit and I got a tie and I got the pin on, he knows why I'm there. He knows that, okay, that's my guy who's going to put, he's going to put his body in front of a bullet in case that happens. I want our young people to realize that's the way we feel about them as well. But listen, the young white kids that are walking that campus, they know why I'm there. They, they know that I'm there to protect them. Now, sometimes protecting them means protecting them from themselves. I think a lot of people who come from our community do not look at the police that way, but I want them to. I want them to know that, no, fam, I'm here for you. That's my first job is to take care of you.
this kind of double consciousness that you have to live with being a black man and also a police officer. Given, you know, what we saw this summer, not even this summer, but, you know, the past X amount of years. Name of, a year, exactly. Right, right, right name a year, right? Uh, these unarmed killings of black people um, by law enforcement, by police, but yet we're still told that we have to trust this system. But as, as, as people who are living within the system, we see that these incidents aren't happening in vacuums, that they're, they're interconnected and has a relationship of power, race, class. Yes. So, so, how, so how do you, as, as one individual, try to instill that trust? Because I can trust you, but that, that system that you work in, that I still have to live within, is, is still not mended for me as a Black person. It's not mended enough for you. And I, and I understand that. Listen, that's totally, that's totally, I get it. I have to do my part every day to change the system. Um, the system for us in this country has changed over the years. Things have progressed. And my job is to go out there every day and take the skills that God has given me, apply those to the best of my ability, no shorts, doing the work that you have to do to make sure that people look at us in a different way uh, and that we always, always, always perform in a way that we would and treat people the way we want to be treated. If you do the small steps and all of us do that, man, we can, we can do things. But listen, the trials and tribulations just makes us more special, man. I love me some black folks because we have a spirit that you, you can't kill, you can't crush. We're beautiful. And I, I think that I have to do my job better than anybody else. You got to be twice as good to be considered equal. Right. I'm trying to be three times as good. How are we going to use our TCU collaboration of working on challenges with police and communities of color as a model for the rest of the country? The Less Is More program is something that we could do. Um, it's talking about the lockdown, the evacuate and seek shelter. It's an acronym for the three uh, emergency procedures, policies that we teach our young people. When we go to do the training at the beginning of the semester, we go to the building and we do three different drills all at one time. We do a lockdown drill, we do an evacuation drill, we do a seek shelter drill. And we teach them what to do. And these young people that we're dealing with on a daily basis, they've been doing lockdown drills since they were in grade school. Uh, so we teach them how to do that. And then we uh, go on to the evacuation drill and the seek shelter drill. And we explain to them how we do those things. What I was thinking about as far as a collaboration with you two fine gentlemen is one of the things that I've learned in all my time around here, I've been on this, on this planet is I always think too small. And that that's one of the things I would tell a younger me is think bigger. I would want to work on a program with you guys and whoever else wanted to join us so that it would be a model for um, universities across, across the country. I, I could see us on stage, uh, dressed to the nines, answering questions, teaching them our method of how we do things. But here's the thing, that does not start with me. I noticed that I got these great ideas on how to, uh, to work with the public and to work with the young people. The best ideas are not gonna come from me. They're gonna come from the young people who we're trying to reach and trying to, to make an understanding so that's my thing is how do we work uh, together so that we can make something so good that everybody else says, man, I want to do what TCU is doing uh, because it's been a successful program. This summer, we heard a lot of defund the police. 
Right. What's interesting about that phrase, when it gets people's attention like it did yours, right? It, yes. it, it strikes a nerve, right? And it puts people in a, in a framework of, we want to take money from the people that are protecting us. Yes. But, but, it, but if I may just unpack my framing when I hear it, it's the critical analysis of the what's versus the why's, mm-hmm. right? So if we have more police officers, I don't think that necessarily equates to less crime. No. I think if we put more uh, financial backing into education, into uh, health, into career development, then people will have what they need in a more equitable society. So they don't need or they don't have to commit, quote unquote, crimes. Right. And I think that that answers more so to the to why you commit the crime as opposed to what did you do to commit the crime? You know, and also just to dovetail on that, I mean, what about these new ideas being floated around? I'm just curious of maybe bringing social workers in as a first responder. I mean, I don't know if you saw that incident where the nine-year-old girl was like pepper sprayed. I mean, it right. seems as I, if, did. I saw that the other night, yes. Yeah, you know, it seems as if like, you know, reasonable heads could have prevailed in terms of, she was a girl who was in trauma. You know, and the last thing she, I mean, if what she said was true in terms of someone just being stabbed and she witnessed this, you right. know, this idea of now I'm gonna put you in handcuffs, now I'm gonna pepper spray you. We all know when we were nine years old, just how traumatic that would be. Just well, anybody, if you're 39 years old, that would be traumatic, right? right? And so when we say defunding, I mean, it's not a matter of we don't want police to be able to do their jobs, but this idea that we want to militarize, well, we have, we have questions about that. I hate to say this, but it's it's not showing a lot of effort or thought. We could have come up with a different word because what you gentlemen are describing to me is investing in other areas. You're not basically wanting to take all the money from the police and put it in those other areas. Raise taxes, put it in other areas. Police officers are asked to do just about everything. They're supposed to be uh, mentors. They're supposed to be marriage counselors. They're supposed to be referees of a fight. They have, they're tasked with a lot of things. Now, I've been in management um, in the federal agency and now at the uh, TCU for 17, 18 years. And I've never seen stacks of cash laying around at the police department. That There's just, just so much there that we have. I'm trying to hire the best of the best to come out to work at TCU. Uh, and the competition is steep, especially for brothers who look like us because they are few and far between. So it's tough. So I have to have a salary that that gentleman or lady would want to take that salary. But if you cut my police department and you cut the cash that we, you know, we pay there or put into what we do there, it's not going to make us better. It's actually going to make us a little bit more inferior. And it's a phrase, like you say, it gets people's attention. But what it does is also uses it against us as well. There were several, several uh, campaigns throughout the country uh, that um, the the opposition used the term, all they want to do is defund the police. Well, there you go. You just gave them everything they wanted. So now they're going to say, okay, these people don't believe in protecting their communities. So I just think that the phrase is... um, and the people who even defend it, they don't say, well, we don't want to take the money from the police. No, but you said defund the police. So I do get a little uh, excited about that one. But I think that to, to give the assets and resources to your uh, police officers, here's what you need to do. You demand accountability. You do not shield them with police unions. Okay. You hit them in their pocket with fines or you send them to jail. 
the, le the last thing an officer ever wants to do is to go to jail. So if you tell the person, if you commit a crime and it's a blatant crime that you have done, or you have done something to injure a nine-year-old child by spraying her in the face with mace, she's nine years old. That person needs to pay a fine for that and be convicted of something. There's something that should be wrong with that and he should not be immune from that. Once you start doing that once or twice, Folks will learn. That's all that has to be done is hold people accountable. And then people will think about what they do. What I really liked about your response just then, it's a real response from a real person. The idea that you recognize the humanity of that nine-year-old girl. Because what you said about the police unions, honestly, when you see some of their defenses, mm -hmm. it's head scratching. Like, how can you say this? I mean, that's the problem with Derek Chauvin. People were telling him, you're on his neck, bro. But he was so inflexible. It seemed like the more that they told him, it seemed like the less he could retreat because maybe he thought he was going to somehow you know, like give up some sort of power and control. But right. police officers are human too. And I, and I appreciate your comment because it's about recognizing our humanity. And I think for people on the other side mm -hmm. to recognize that these officers are putting themselves at risk. They don't have all the answers. It's nerve wracking to have to, despite your training, still come up with the correct conclusion, often in the back of an eye. It's right. not easy, mistakes are made, right? Yeah. You know, and, and this idea that there's grace on both sides, but for the system that we know right. to say flat out, nope, we're just doing things, you know, business as usual. That's why I think really erodes that trust. Is even though you said earlier, it's only a couple of police officers, I mean, the power dynamic is disproportional, right? You know, you're held to a higher standard. Again, that, that comes with the territory. The only job where you can take a person's life legally and you can deprive them of their liberties and of their life. So no, you are right. The standards should be higher and they should. And it's a very, very tough job. It's a demanding job, but it was a job that no one said you had to do this job. Uh, they chose to do the job and uh, we should expect only excellence from them. And I totally agree with that. And I see why people get frustrated. Man, when you do something wrong, you have to just come out and say, we did that wrong. That would that was that was screwed up. That would go a long way in, in saying that, hey, listen, we, we uh, our bad, uh, we did, we overreacted or whatever, and that officer is going to be disciplined, and you have um, community boards that advise the police and those kind of things. There's so many different ideas out there to hold your police department accountable. I know that at TCU, <laughs> we, we know that if you mess up and do something that is even faintly uh, out of line, you're gone. That's, that's just the way it is. And um, our more, I wish more police departments were like that, but I think they will. We're going to evolve. There's more people in positions now, today, uh, female officers, officers of color, um, gay, lesbian officers who are slowly but surely every day trying to make progress to bring back the um, prestige of the position. But you got to earn that. That's not something that's just given. You have to earn that on a daily basis. You mentioned a part about raise the taxes, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think uh, for our listeners, if, if we don't spend time just kind of briefly on that section, it might be a little head scratching for them. Um, because when we look at city budgets and yes. when we, we see a city uh, 
let's say Fort Worth, and um, this is just for example, and their their police budget is three times that of their education, or maybe two times that of their uh, health, or, or or x amount of times in their roads. Right. Then I think that's where that phrase defund the police, and maybe again, maybe too strong of a phrase, but I think in many ways can be applicable. That you know we have we put all of this money in our policing, mm-hmm. but we have a couple coins here in education, a couple coins here in health, a couple couple years in, in career development. Right. And we're still struggling to figure out why people are committing the crimes that they are. Right. So we, we, we bring out more police officers. We put more money into their policing. That, right. And that doesn't answer to the why. That just gives a short-term fix into the what. But it's brothers like you who are going to slowly change that, man. We need to um, make sure that we are helping people who can help themselves. Because if we educate young minds, nobody is born a criminal. If you educate young minds and you show them the way to go and they have supervision and they have mentors to, that we all had in our lives, Man, there's no limit to what a young person can do. But if you live in an area where you see criminality all the time, um, it's it's a, it's a tough go. So no, education is 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 so much is so key to it. So yeah, they should be beefing up the education uh, budgets. Um, but I still let the police do what they do and uh, hold them accountable. Um, but bring up uh, and raise more money to do the things that you're talking about, which I think would help society. When we all do better, when we're all not, when we're not paying for people to be incarcerated for lifetime, um, it's cost more to hold a person in prison than it does to send them to college. I, I totally agree with you. Education should be first and foremost. Why isn't it? Because we are not pushing our uh, elected officials to make that a priority. You bring up excellent points. And um, one with uh, the transparency before accountability, um, with stripping away all this, you know, excess of protection of police officers, it's hard to hold them accountable because there's no need to be transparent about what's done. Um, and, and before we close, I just want to say, you know, thank you to you and how you show up in your work um, in this, in, in trying to engage and reconcile. Um, I mean, I think you work within a system that is heavily critiqued. Um, you know, to be honest with you, I'll probably forever critique it, but I can say I appreciate you. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you as an individual uh, for coming and showing up and, and trying to make a change. Well, listen, uh, feel free. It was an honor to speak with both of you. Uh, feel free to to bounce ideas off of me to um, whatever, man. I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm down. I, will, I want to uh, help. I think that... I, I firmly believe the good Lord puts you in places and you're never, ever in a spot you're not supposed to be in. Us meeting, us getting together on this is not an accident. It was destined. And I just think that there's so much more that we could possibly do. Please use those creative brains um, to figure out how we can work together to build the place that we know it could be. Because I agree, Mr. Perkins, in that I have some very strong critiques about the policing system just in general. Mm-hmm. But for me, this conversation is a step towards reconciliation, yeah. right? You know, we're, we're able to come together, share space and exchange ideas. And, and hopefully we, we both walk away with a different and new understanding, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's for me, the step towards reconciliation. And this conversation 
is what we can continue to build upon. And so we're, we're, we're very appreciative of you being in the space. And um, even when we're off the podcast, um, you know, we need to continue to, to build. Folks before us made it better for us. We have got to do our part. It's like a relay race and we on that third curve. And as you, if you run the 440, you know that curve, that third one's a monster. And I think that this generation, uh, my daughter, Mr. Perkins, man, they're gonna, man, they just, it's the, it's gonna be mind boggling the things that they're going to do. Be sure to check out RRI Week, where we have a whole host of activities planned. On Monday, we will have restaurant takeover. Black-owned medias will come in and serve food while we serve up questions for food and thought. On Tuesday the 23rd, we will have a student-led panel that you don't want to miss. On Wednesday the 24th, we will have faculty and staff also talking about their experiences. On Thursday the 25th, you do not want to miss TCU alum and Hall of Fame NFL great Damian Thomason. And finally on the 26th, Friday, join us outside, mother permitted, for a block party music, games, giveaways, and more. From the 22nd to the 26th, do not miss RRI Week. Go to www.tcu.edu slash RRI for more information. Be there for B Square.